0: Justice Center of Marin invites you to a May Day Spring get-together on Sunday, April 28th. The event will be held at the West End Cafe in San Rafael at 1131 4th Street and includes a Middle Eastern dinner served from 6.15 to 7.15 p.m. Joe Mueller, professor of environmental science at the College of Marin, will speak at 7.15 to 8.30 p.m. The entrance fee is sliding scale $35 to $50 and will benefit the task force program at Social Justice Center of Marin. This event is wheelchair accessible. For more information, visit www.sjcmarin.org or contact Justine at 415-883-8188. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is a minute past 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover. Welcome to Cover to Cover, Open Booker, as I like to call it, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan. I will be here for the next half hour talking to you about film. And today we're going to focus on the San Francisco Film Society's International Film Festival, which runs um, through May 9th at, at various locations through San Francisco and Berkeley, And, uh, there's a lot of very dynamic films from all over the globe. One film that really struck me as particularly interesting is a film entitled A River Changes Course, and it's a film about Cambodia, um, by a Cambodian-American filmmaker named Kalyani Mom. Uh, this film was a winner of the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, and, uh, Kalyani herself was born in Cambodia, uh, escaped to the U.S., um, and then eventually became a filmmaker and came back to uh, Cambodia to make this film. So, welcome to KPFA, Kalyani.
1: Oh, thank you, Raina. I appreciate being here with you.
0: So, this is a documentary where you went back and started interviewing people about uh, their lives and looking at how things have changed, um, how uh, corporations, how poverty, how pollution, how many different aspects are affecting uh, the rural people in Cambodia. So what inspired you first to come back and start thinking about the idea for this film?
1: Well um as you said as you mentioned um I was born in Cambodia and um I was born during the Khmer Rouge regime and for those who aren't familiar with that period of genocide um over 1.7 million people were Cambodian people as well as uh, ethnic minorities and uh, foreigners um were Executed and killed. And uh, a majority of them were the intelligentsia, as well as artists and musicians and government officials and leaders. So a lot of the educated people were executed at that time, and um, many people lost their lives. Um, my family and I fled the Khmer Rouge regime um, when I was um, two years old, you know, and we tracked through the jungles from Cambodia to the border of Cambodia and Thailand. And we lived in the refugee camps for about a year and a half before I finally immigrated to the United States. Um, But growing up, you know, my family told us many stories about that period and, of course, many stories about Cambodia. And so I've always been entranced and fascinated by my background and always wanted to go back to Cambodia. Um, During the summer of my junior year of college, I finally had an opportunity to return to my home country and completely fell in love with the country. And over the course of the years, I've um, been able to, you know, have the privilege to see the the country, you know, change over time. And um, what I saw in Cambodia in 1998 um, was very different from the Cambodia that I saw in 2008. You know, I noticed... complete change in the country. You know, the forests that I had traveled to in 1998 were completely cut down in 2008, you know, before I had to fly over the forest, you know, in the jungle to get to the area in the northeastern part of Cambodia where South Samoan woman um, and her family lives in the jungle. And now there's clear roads leading the way. So the, the country has changed a lot. And, um, you know, the, the, the lake where um city lives It's completely being overfished, and there are dams being built, you know, um, tall skyscrapers being built, and thousands of people and their families are being thrown off their land. So um, I'm not against, you know, development. I don't think any of us are against change happening. But um, when I returned to my home country in 2008 and I saw the changes, you know, in my country, I just thought, you know, there must be some kind of impact. You know, this must be affecting people's lives in some way. And if we don't, you know, document this now, then, um, you know, we might regret it later. So I felt that this was definitely something I needed to do, that I had to document it and make a documentary about it.
0: Now, there's so many different ways to make a documentary. I mean, you could have done it, um, you know, as an advocacy piece, uh, interviewing people who were working at NGOs and working with the people. You could follow one family. You could, you know, just stay in the city and um, have different kinds of interviews. How did you decide to focus on three different families? Because you focused on one who w- was in the rural north and then one who were fishers and then one who lived, uh, near Nan Pen and, uh, uh, with all of them were poor. So how did you come up with what you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's so many ways to approach, you know, storytelling. Um, but I think for me, my, interest has always been in telling stories about people and about their lives, and my interest has always been um, to reveal the beauty of people's lives. And, you know, so the film is not definitely not an advocacy piece, it's not a political piece, but I, I, a lot of people re- refer to it as a poetic piece, and I think that's really true. I think it really reveals, you know, the poetry of their lives. And the beauty of their lives, but it's also, you know, and with beauty, I think there's also struggle as well, and so um, it, you know, brings all those things, you know, together. And, and I, I you know, I, um, you know, I guess, you know, with our the struggle with the Cambodian identity is really complicated. You know, I think people, we've we've lived, you know, with this horrific past, you know, this ghost, you know, that has been like hovering above us you know, about the Khmer Rouge period. And, you know, anybody who knows anything about Cambodia, they only know about the Khmer Rouge, Um, but they don't realize that there's something that exists in the present right now. There's a beauty that exists in the present right now. And there's, you know, resources and people and culture and traditions that exist right now that need to be preserved. And, um, you know, in making this film, I wanted to reveal all those things. And the people that I decided to follow, Bari um, uh, Kiobal, and South Samoan and their families, for me, they represent, you know, a diverse range of the kind of communities that exist in Cambodia right now. You know, the communities that exist in the forests and the jungles, you know, the indigenous people who live off the land and depend, you know, on the forest you know, for their survival and for their livelihood. And um, the people who live on the water and the lakes and the rivers and who depend on fish, you know, for their livelihood and their way of life. And then people like you who live in the villages and live in the outside provinces, you know, who um, struggle to make ends meet, you know, for their families and um, depend on their farmland um, to subsist. And their lives are changing because, you know, they are, many of them are forced to go work in the factories in the city because of uh, increasing debt that they're taking on. And they're taking on debt, you know, because um, they can't survive, you know, with the amount of food that they have, you know, with the amount of rice that they're growing. And so um, I wanted to reveal all those different aspects of Cambodian life, but also at the same time, I wanted these families, I wanted to go so deep into their lives that I'm able to reveal the more universal ideas and the more universal struggles that I think all of us, you know, are going through right now in our lives.
0: So then... Yeah. (laughs) So I'm wondering about... All of that, because on one level, you are Cambodian, but another, you have such a different culture. So how did you, yes, um, yes. and it seems like with each of the, the families that you worked with, you, um, stayed there for quite a while and, and filmed them. And I, I'm wondering both how, uh, you sort of adapted to their life and how they understood your life and whether it felt like mm-hmm. that there was a similarity or not.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely come from a different culture. You know, I grew up in the United States. You know, I've been, I've been educated here. Um, you know, I've lived here since I was four years old. Um, I went to Yale. I went to law school. You know, I had a very different background from these families. But you know, ultimately, Raina, what I realized, you know, in all of my travels throughout the world, I realized that there's really nothing that um, it's different about us. <laughs> you know, we're really all the same, no matter who we are and where we come from. I'm fortunate enough that I was able to speak to them, you know, in our native tongue. You know, I was able to speak to them in Khmer, and I think that that meant a lot to them. But at the same time, you know, they, I was able to relate to them on on more universal levels. You know, we both, we all share stories, we all laugh we talked you know we shared food with one another you know we we broke bread as you can say or you know actually broke rice <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know but um you know we actually the most i think the most wonderful thing was that i ate everything that they gave me you know, I think that was probably the clinch pin on, you know, why I was able to win their hearts. You know, it's because I ate everything. And I lo- I wanted to, you know, their food is delicious. You know, they eat fish every day and rice. They really don't need much more than that. You know, and I even, <laughs> this is really, really funny. Um, I even drank their iced coffee, you yeah. know, on the in the floating village. You know, there mm-hmm. were these um, boats that would pass by, you know, like a kind of like a boat taxi um, or like an ice cream truck, that floating boat cafe. And they would offer these ice coffees that were made from the river water, you know, an ice made from river water. And it was was probably something I should not have had, but you know, it didn't matter to me at that moment. (laughs) You know, it was so hot and it was so refreshing. Um, but that those were the gestures, you know, the small little gestures that they really appreciated, you know, and that made them feel so close to me was my willingness to be open to them and, and their willingness, you know, to be open with me. And so we had a very, you know, very intimate relationship and I, it was an incredible experience. And I, I hope the audience, you know, will be able to, to feel that when they watch the film. They will, you know, sense that intimacy.
0: Well, there, it, you know, it's so interesting because there's, there's many aspects of it. The first thing that strikes me is that the film opens up with this girl who looks like she's six or seven, using a machete, cutting down, um, you know, uh, reeds. Sugar cane. Sugar cane, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so you're thinking, oh, so it's a really different idea of safety. And then uh, at one moment she's asked to to bring her little sister into the from inside to outside and she refuses and then she agrees and she sort of grabs her (laughs) by the um by the elbow in a way that um you know know. so many of us would like panic and think that the shoulder of this baby is going to get dislocated out yeah (laughs) so that there's such um there's there's all these different ideas of um of parenting, of the sibling relationship. So there's similarities, but there's also, there's a lot of cultural differences. And uh, did it ever seem to them that you were assessing them or judging them or uh, looking at how different your life was because you had mm-hmm. left and come back? Or did it just mm-hmm. seem like uh, you were just there in this intimate togetherness?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I never felt that from them, um, and maybe because I never felt different from them. Um, and I never sensed that they felt that way about me, you know, that I was judging them at all. You know, I think that they really felt comfortable with me. And I, it wasn't just me. It was, you know, Lang, our producer in Cambodia, was there, too, and our driver. We had two different drivers at different times, and they came and helped us. So it was, it was always the three of us you know together with them, and they you know they never felt that way i at least I don't think so, and I've you know spoken to them often about their experience, and they just really enjoyed it, and they always consider me you know as family to them so um I don't think they ever felt that way and interesting enough, I never felt you know I say this to my friends too when I came back you know I never felt like um you know there was there was a difference in consciousness. You know, like I always spoke to them as if they were just my peers, you know, like my my best friends here in the United States, for example. Um, maybe they don't have the cultural references. I can't, like, reference to Seinfeld, for example, but, you know, but um, there are other references that we can reference to, and I never, like, felt that they were really any different from me at all. Um, so sometimes when they couldn't understand, um, you know, some kind of perspective that I was trying to relate to them, you know, sometimes it shocked me that they didn't understand because I always felt that they were on the same level of consciousness as I. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 in a way, though, we all live in different levels of consciousness, no matter who we are. And they have a greater consciousness about other things than I do, and I may have less consciousness about certain things than they do. So, you know, we all live on different levels. But at the end of the day, like I told you, the the consciousness that really mattered was just, you know, our love of life and our love for each other and, you know, and the intimate things that we shared with one another. I think that's all that mattered at the end of the day. And I think ultimately, universally, I think that's that's really all that matters too.
0: Well, you know, one of the things, one of the issues, I I interview a lot of documentary filmmakers, and there is such this pull because... Often the filmmaker has a lot more resources than the people that they're interviewing. And there's some moment, for example, when one of the girls has to take a, um, like, sort of a shuttle that takes her to work in Phnom Pen. It's clearly really expensive, and then when she's there, she has to pay all this money to train to learn how to be a seamstress so that she can work in this factory and make so little money, but with the goal of hopefully sending money back. And um, so I wonder if when you were having to deal with things like in the city, whether there were more pulls on you in terms of uh, having to take care of or wishing to do mm-hmm. something or, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, how you negotiated that.
1: Yeah, no, I I mean, that, that definitely is something that is, I mean, if I wasn't human, I wouldn't be concerned about it, <laughs> you know, but that definitely was, you know, a concern for me. And, you know, I, actually while we were filming them, we always um, – I don't say help because we actually, they helped us more than we helped them, you know, by providing us, you know, a home to live in, providing us food, you know, providing us shelter, allowing us to to be with them essentially. And they cooked for us. So for everything that they did for us, we compensated them and we helped them in that way. And which was, you know, for them, you know. Uh, It's not, not considerable because my budget was also not considerable either, (laughs) but, um, but at least, you know, it was something and I knew that I was helping them in that way. And, um, you know, I, I wish I could, you know, even, you know, give more, but even in my position, you know, right now I don't have the means, you know, to even help very much, you know, and, um. I think that what they appreciated most was that somebody was there for them. You know, for Kew, for Saskamore, and for City. It was just, they they said to me all the time, they were just, they just appreciated that we had
0: this relationship,
1: you know, and that someone was there to listen to them and be with them.
0: Have they seen the film?
1: Yes, they have. (laughs) And um, our first screening was last October in Cambodia. And that was, I must say, that was probably the best. You know, and I'm sorry to say this is Sundance, but that is probably, you know, the best screening we ever had, ever, and will probably ever have in the future. There were 600 people there um, at the largest theater in Phnom Penh, and uh, 200 of them were parents of garment factory workers. And the, all three of the families came to the screening, including um, Lawrence family from the northeastern jungles. And that was their, their indigenous, you know, tribe. And so that was the first time they ever left their village, you know, the first time they ever left their province and the first time they ever came to a city, the first time they ever saw a movie, let alone a movie about themselves. (laughs) And so they were really shocked. Um, I, you know, during the, all the filming process, I shared, you know, some of the footage with them and I showed them images. And but they still you know of course they couldn't really comprehend you know what I was doing. Um, they knew I was recording something, but they're not really sure what it was. you know, I tried to explain to them what a documentary is and the kind of story I wanted to tell. but I still don't think they really understood you know it wasn't until they saw the film on a the big screen that they, you know, it finally hit home to them. Wow, this is what it is. And it was an amazing screening. Um, There were so many people there, so many Cambodians. It was filled with Cambodian people, which made me so happy. And the whole screening was done in Khmer, in the Khmer language, you know, which is really unusual in Cambodia right now. You know, a lot of screenings, a lot of events are done in English you know, not in the Native tongue. So I was very proud that we were able to speak Khamai at this screening. And then the audience, you know, they just rose up and they talked about, you know, their responses to the film. And one woman, she was Kham Muslim, which is the same um, religious group as the city in the film. And there are about... 300,000 Jam people living in Cambodia right now. And, um, you know, she stood up and she, you know, where she had a hijab on. She's very young. It's already unusual for a young woman to stand up in front of 600 people and speak, you know, but even more unusual for Jam Muslim women to, to stand up and speak. And she said that, you know, for the first time in her life, she felt like she belonged in Cambodia. You know, she always felt ostracized and different from everyone else. And now, for the first time, she can see, you know, that she is part of the community. And I think that for, you know, Sadi and for Southamore and NQ, all of them, I think they also feel the same way, that they are, in a way, you know, with the film, they've been infused into this larger community. And, I, you know, we we're actually planning an outreach program, you know, to reach out to all the villages across Cambodia and to screen the film in villages all across, you know, the country. And, um, and I think that, you know, once people see the film, the villagers can see the film, they'll realize, you know, that they're not alone, you know, that this is happening all over the country, that the forests are being cut down, people are being thrown off their land, you know, the rivers are being overfished, you know, and there are, the you know, social and environmental impact, you know, to that. And so once they feel they're not alone, I think that people will be more willing to take action and do something for what is happening.
0: So uh, we're talking with Kalyani Mom. Her film, A River Changes Chorus, has three screenings for the film festival. It's playing tomorrow night at the Kabuki at 7 o'clock p.m., uh, Monday the 29th at 6.30 at Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley, and then Sunday, May 5th at 1 o'clock at the New People Theater, which is also in San Francisco in um, Japantown. So I want to thank you so much for joining us and talking about A River Changes Course. It's a very beautiful film. Uh, film that uh, is very inspiring oh,
1: thank you so much Raina I appreciate it.
0: So I want to talk about a couple of other films that are showing in the film festival that I thought you might be interested in. I particularly love going to the films at uh, at the Pacific Film Archive, and uh, so I'm going to focus on a few of those films as well. One is a film entitled Rosie by Marcel Giesler. It's a film from Switzerland, and it's won a lot of awards, including the best film for Switzerland. It tells the story of a not very um, interesting man, in a way, who is is a famous novelist who comes home to help take care of his alcoholic mother who has just had a stroke. And through the course of the film, we learn about him, his relationship with his sister, and slowly start understanding something about the relationship that they have with their mother and their dead father. And it's a very powerful film that it's surprising in that the characters initially seem like you don't really want to get to know them. And then pretty soon you're riveted by who they are and what they represent and, um, what they communicate. It's a very interesting film. It's entitled Rosie. It shows a Pacific Film Archive, um, Sunday evening at eight o'clock and also has a couple of other screenings, um, including this evening at the Kabuki in San Francisco and then Tuesday also at the Kabuki there's a film that i haven 't seen that uh, people have really been talking highly about, entitled Leviathan, and it's it's a really very interesting film by Lucien Custa Taylor and ferena paravel it 's a, a French uh, British and United States film, and it looks at a thrilling adventure both on the high seas and in documentary storytelling and uh it takes place off the coast of Massachusetts, the setting of Moby Dick, and using portable video cameras that are handed off from filmmaker to fisherman, uh, they basically do this amazing aquatic aesthetic story. This is showing Monday evening, and it's really very interesting. A film from Brazil that I quite enjoyed is slow. Uh, it's one of those films that it's that you think about it long after you've watched it. It's entitled They'll Come Back. And it's a film really about class struggle and adolescence where a girl and boy who are teenagers get lo- left on the side of the road by their parents and their parents don't come back for some reason and so the kids go off on their own and the girl winds up um, meeting these squatters and connecting with them and connecting with other people and the ramifications of all of that as she finally winds away back home and and you see how she's changed and what she's been confronting. Very interesting film but there's tons of films that are really dynamic. Um, if you want more information about the film festival you can go to sffs san francisco film society dot o-r-g for um, a lot of films or the PFA website at bam pfa. Dot .edu I also want to spend a couple of minutes talking about a new film that's released today by François Ozon entitled In the House. Francois ozon is one of the most interesting French filmmakers uh, he had a lot of dynamic films from many different angles uh, and then he had this huge slump so he did under the sand uh, a film about loss and mourning swimming pool which was a, fa- a film about creativity eight women which was <laughs> a, a sort of an Operatic romp, um, and many different other films. But his new film is kind of a black comedy, a family drama, and a psychological thriller all in one. It stars Fabrice Luchini and Kristen Scott Thomas, as well as Emmanuel Seigneur. And it tells the story of a, a teacher of a high school who was really uh, at a dead end in terms of his job. And one of the students, Writes a story. He winds up getting inspired by the story, and the teenager keeps on writing, sort of chapter after chapter, and getting the the teacher so involved in this story that he comes alive as a teacher, and then raises all these questions about what is a novel, how is a story told. Uh, and we as the audience are observers, we're voyeurs, we're stuck in this idea of what's truth and what's fiction. And uh, it's a very playful film that has a lot of very interesting implications about how we get pulled into the world of uh, a film or a literature and how we want certain things to happen. So after a while, the stories unfold, reality shifts, and you wind up leaving the film thinking, boy, that was really a lot of fun. It's the new film by uh, Francois Ozone. It opens today at Barrier Theaters. It's entitled In the House. And uh, it's a really fun film. So definitely worth checking out. So once again, the Film Society, uh, Films for the San Francisco International Film Festival at the uh, Berkeley PFA and in San Francisco. My name is Raina Cowan. I've been your host today on Open Book, Cover to Cover, Frame to Frame. And I'll be back next month. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.
2: one really way important to help KPFA listeners sponsor radio is to volunteer in our phone room during fundraising. You get to meet interesting people, eat good food, talk to fellow KPFA supporters, and most important, help KPFA. We start our KPFA Spring Fund Drive Thursday, May 2nd. We really need help in the morning and afternoon drive time. We begin at 6.30 in the morning, so come on down to KPFA. We're just off the of University at 1929. Martin Luther King, during your way. Remember, it's your radio station. So come on down to KPFA and help make our fund drive a success. And another way to help us is make a pledge online at KPFA.org. Pledging online helps us reduce our fund drive days. So check KPFA.org. Pledge early and help reduce our unair fund drive days. So we need phone room volunteers, and we need you to pledge online at KP.